Well, the uh, the Bibles came in, and I think I might I might return them because just the print turns out to be so small that I don't know if it's very useful for people. So I'm going to see if I can maybe return them. I don't know, Gary, if you if you looked at it. I don't. There were two or three people who bought one. You're probably not interested in buying this, or yeah, yeah. You're not interested, yeah. I would like a large print. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Can you get the same book in bigger print? I hope so. I think you can, but you're going to you find like it's more like used copies, which is okay. But it's just instead of ordering bulk, you order every individual one, and they come from all over the United States from mom pop bookstores. You know, it's not, it's not an efficient way of ordering things, but it, it, we can make it work probably. Maybe if I get to know who who really wants to buy one, and we'll do it that way. You know, as opposed to say fifty. What is the name of? It's uh, it's it's the Revised Standard Version. Yeah, sure. Anybody can have them, pass them out. Okay. Well, let's do a very quick review. Okay, so we have uh, gone over just a kind of a review to sort of step back and figure out what we've been doing here. This class is studying Scripture, but it's it's in a certain sense it's really what is called the economy of salvation. And it's a study of the economy of salvation through studying the Bible. That's kind of the way it, it's really supposed to be. Um, and uh, the economy of salvation, if you can remember, some of you were probably at the first class, I talked about how uh, you've got this phrase, or this word rather, in Greek, ekonomia. And it has to do with, it's basically a household management method, essentially, is what it would mean. Okay? And it's applied to God in the New Testament in a number of passages, especially in the uh, in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And uh, the ekonomia is how God governs and manages human history. And it's he, he manages it as if so, you know a human household owner managed a house. Okay, so that's that's kind of how it goes. But God is a very very wise household manager. And so he arranges everything in salvation history in an intelligent way and in a meaningful way. And that's kind of the key that I've been trying to draw everybody's attention to is how something that happens in one part of the Bible, another, something else that happens in another part of the Bible, it's all interrelated even though it's separated from uh, the one event from the other by hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years. And they're all somehow interconnected in really subtle and fascinating ways. And that that reality of interconnectedness happens on two different levels. The first level it happens at is in real history, real raw history, like there's actual facts, actual events, actual people uh, that show up on history, on the screen of history, and these people in themselves, historically speaking, have interconnections and relations to each other. These events and these different things that take place in history have interconnections and relations to each other that together form an intelligent message. Uh, but also that's one level that this sort of um, intelligence is seen at. But then the second level is the wording of the Bible. So it's, it's not just the raw historical events, but it's how the Bible uh, speaks about those events, portrays them, and selectively talks about them and, and places them side by side in the order of the narrative of the Bible itself. And the way that the Bible and the words of the Bible do that, that also shows an intelligence and a meaning that in some ways 
apart from that kind of the, the scriptural interpretive framework, those raw events, it, it might not, we might not be able to even link them together, really. You know, so it's the Bible that's doing that work for us and point, but it's very subtle. And there's no passage in the Bible where you open it up and you say, oh, step one, two, three, like we're, we're trying to do here. There's nothing like that. You, it's, it's hundreds of years of Jews and Christians reading the Bible, noticing all the different interconnections, uh, and placing them together, and then transmitting that. I'm trying to convey that to you on the basis of traditional interpretation, also modern interpreters as well. Uh, so th- this is the economy of salvation. And the way that I'm, I'm de- uh, demarcating each sort of phase of the economy of salvation is via an, uh, an important figure. Okay, so you have, we, we did Moses, I'm sorry, we did Adam first, and then Noah, and then Abraham, and now we're on Moses. And we're going to then go to David, and then uh, there might be a, another figure, a sixth figure, or certainly a sixth period of time. And next year, like as I continue to go and develop this course, I might switch it from uh, organizing it according from, from people to time periods or dispensations or eras. So uh, I might um, have uh, uh, you know an era that corresponds roughly from, say, Adam to um, Noah, and then from Noah to Abraham, so forth and so on. Um, but there's a there's kind of a there's a time period there's a sixth time period that's kind of a little bit open and we're going to address it this year probably by just looking at the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah particularly and see what they say and then the seventh and final sort of epoch is the New Testament is the era of grace within which we're living right now I'd also like to end it off by talking about eschatology does anybody remember what eschatology is anybody want to be brave and Sarah. Okay, go for it. Okay, yeah, sure, it's relevant to that, yeah. So when you study the end things, and death is one of them, okay? So if you study the, the traditional Catholic thing is the four last things, and I'll be preaching on the four last things during Lent. So they're usually kind of scary. It's, it's death, judgment, uh, hell, and heaven. Those are the four last things. And they're usually traditional things that you hear about in Lent because it's a kind of a penitential season. Uh, but so that's part of eschatology is the four last things. But eschatology also encompasses a broader sort of reality. So um, talk about there are historical events that are prophesied to come about in the future that have yet to happen. Okay, and that's also included in eschatology. There's probably maybe the two main ones that come to my mind right now is the uh, the arrival of this figure that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. Okay who is like a substitute Jesus, basically. And all the world is captivated by by him. He's a political figure. And all the world is captivated by him. And he leads the world astray. And it happens pretty much just before the second coming of Christ. Um, And then also uh, is, is the conversion of national Israel, of the Jewish people. And that's a quite an astounding event. Um, that, you know, you look at events today, you don't think that it's really possible. Like, come on, how's that going to happen, you know? But it, it is part of uh, part of our faith. Scripture teaches it. It's very strongly communicated to us through our tradition. It's even in the, the current uh, Universal Catechism speaks about it as well. So you've got these certain historical events that take place right before the second coming of Christ. 
And uh, those two are definites. And then there's probably a constellation of other events that are not so definite. They're, it's more of hearsay or theory. Um, but you know, they can be. We can speak about them a little bit. It's just not very certain that they're going to happen. Like there, I think there is one idea of um, there's going to be almost like a glory age for Catholicism right before the Second Coming. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but like a glory age of great peace where there is actually a positive, not an antichrist, but a positive world ruler who's Catholic. And, uh, and he's able to bring about uh, peace to a great extent. And then he's kind of ousted by the Antichrist. Um, and that's how it goes. So, but that, that whole, that figure is not as certain that that's going to happen. But anyway, so it would be nice to talk about eschatology a little bit too. And um, really though, we've been talking about eschatology a lot already. And so you'll always hear me, you know, uh, I gave a homily um, for the CMA. Uh, and it was, can't quite recall what week it was, but it was this vision of uh, Ezekiel. So the prophet Ezekiel sees at the end of the world, he sees this temple, that's this, this new temple, okay, because um, God essentially abandoned the temple in 586 B.C., and uh, it, was a, it was a great disaster, there was a catastrophe, and so it's a loss of hope. But then the prophets, when they, pro- when they prophesy in the midst of all of these negative events, they, always, uh, they also always um, prophesy positive future events. And so that God's promises will ultimately be fulfilled, even though they don't look like they're going to be fulfilled okay, with the destruction of the temple. And so one of the things that Ezekiel prophesies about is this temple. And he's got like 15, pages, uh, sorry, 15 chapters at the end of Ezekiel on this, this, this final grand temple. And he, he describes it in great detail, all its dimensions, how large it is, all these different things about it. And we understand that to be a symbol. Okay? And that the temple that he describes in great detail is actually a symbol of the church and of really the body of Jesus Christ. Because Christ's body is literal, you know, it's flesh and blood, but it's also a mystical body. It's the church. And so you have uh, this temple is referred to as basically the eschatological temple. It's the end temple. And really, the New Testament era, the seventh era that we live in currently, is the eschatological era. Okay, St. Paul talks about, he says about us upon whom the end of the ages has come. And so really, everything in the Old Testament is, is, is fulfilled eschatologically in the New Testament dispensation, in the realities that we have in the sacraments, in the church, uh, specifically, though, in the incarnation of Christ. Um, but there are these kind of end-day events in the Antichrist and these certain things that haven't quite yet happened, so it would be nice to kind of talk about that, too. If, I've, if we've got time, we'll do that. Um, but moving on to the next figure is Moses. All right. And so uh, tonight what we're going to do is focus on uh, the Sinai events, very, very important events um, within Judaism, and it comes to be a very, very important event for us, too. And you've got um, uh, just a sort of a general overview of Moses. Now, Moses um, was, was born. We, we end off Genesis with Jacob and his 12 sons, and they're in Egypt. Okay, And they went there because of a famine. And uh, so they take refuge in Egypt. How did they get into Egypt? How they, does anybody remember from the Genesis narrative? How, how did they, they get... What was their ticket? What was the Jacob... Through Joseph. 
And it was this whole thing where it was serendipitous because what happened to Joseph? What did they do to Joseph? Threw him in the ditch. They were going to kill him. Then he gets actually picked up by some traders and they sell him to some Egyptians. And then he gets up, he finds himself in Egypt and uh, then he gets framed. Uh, a lascivious woman frames him and uh, accuses him of trying to uh, commit adultery with her. And so he, she gets him in trouble and he gets thrown in jail. But then he 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 predicts the, the or he, he basically prophesies the meaning of these guys' dreams. It comes true. One thing leads to another one and he finds himself advising Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks this guy's the greatest thing since sliced bread and makes him number two in the kingdom. So Joseph goes from it's a rags to riches story, okay? And so then the famine happens, the brothers come looking for food. Joseph tests them to see whether or not they've kind of matured past their their you know, uh, nefarious design of actually wanting to kill their, their little brother. And uh, they kind of pass the test at the end. And Joseph reveals himself and says, come on up, because the famine's going to last more, some more time. And, uh, and that's what happens. They bury Joseph at the end of Genesis. The brothers are afraid that... I'm sorry, they bury Jacob at the end of Genesis. The brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to now kill him now that their dad is dead. And he has a very famous phrase right at the end of Genesis where he says, my brothers, do not be afraid and do not be sorry for what happened because you planned it for evil, but God planned it over for good to save a life, seed. And remember, we talk, how many times did we talk about seed last time? Right? You guys probably got tired of seed all the time. It's such an important concept. Um, and so he says, you know, God planned it over for good. And that is the great... Jewish, but really specifically Christian teaching is that God never allows evil to take place unless He brings out of it a greater good. Okay, and that's why God permits evil. That's the permission of evil. He permits it because He can bring. He foresees that a greater good is going to come out of it. Now, what's the greatest evil that's ever happened? The crucifixion of of God. The murder of God. It's the greatest crime that's ever the greatest evil that's ever happened. What's the good that came out of it? Redemption of all humanity. Okay, so that's the whole. That's the Christian message right there in a nutshell. But you can see it in seed form um, back in Genesis. Okay, so they end up in, in uh, Egypt, and uh, Exodus brings us into like another world. It's a, it's a very it's a very different world because it's hundreds of years later. Okay, I think maybe four hundred years later after all the events of Jacob and his sons, and. Uh, the children of Israel multiply and they grow, they keep growing, they keep growing, they keep growing. And uh, Pharaoh and his people start getting worried because there's a kind of a disproportion in uh, childbirth that's taking place and they're afraid. Oh, important message or important um, development in history. What happens from the time of Joseph and his brothers who are sitting pretty, who are sitting on top of the world to the, the beginning of Exodus. Some negative thing happens. The slavery. Okay, so these the Israelites start to multiply and little by little says there is a Pharaoh that arises that knows not that knew not Joseph. And he enslaved the Israelites. So the Israelites then little by little come under the burden and the yoke of slavery in Egypt. So four hundred years have gone by, all the Israelites are there and they're slaves, but there's a lot of them. And so at least one aspect of the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. Remember, Abraham's the God, the promise that God made to Abraham has got a number of dimensions to it. I think I, I think I enumerated five. 
One of them is fulfilled easily, at least. At least one of them is fulfilled by the beginning of, of uh, Exodus. And what is that? What's, what is it? Yes, multiplication. Yeah. He says, your descendants will be as great as the stars of heaven, as numerous as the sand on the shore. And that's what happens in the beginning of Exodus. But what is one of the promises that obviously that's not yet fulfilled in the beginning of Exodus? Remember the promise? Sorry? Freedom. Freedom, sure. Yes, absolutely. That's right. Because one of the promises definitely involves them being, really being kind of the chief dog in the whole world. Their nation is going to be the, be- the most important nation in the world. And uh, their enemies, they'll, they'll, they'll um, possess the gates of their enemies and all that stuff. So that's, that's not fulfilled. Very good. Uh, what, o- what other major aspect of the promise to Abraham is not fulfilled and in a very obvious way in Exodus? So if we go back to the promise of Abraham, they had descendants, we had freedom and uh, victory over enemies, but also land. Remember? So this land, we're going to give, God promised to give this land to Abraham and to his seed forever. And so very obviously the children of Israel are in another land. And that's what Exodus is all about. It's it's Moses is going to bring them back to the promised land. They're going to exit um, Egypt, and they're going to go to the promised land. And if you see this, oh, the series of events that follows uh, and is prophetic of the sacramental economy that we know as Christians. So the major event that takes place is uh, the Passover. What happens at the Passover? Does anybody remember this story? The lamb, the blood on the door. Okay, so you have yeah. These are all the first sons of anybody that's not got the blood on yeah. their doorstep is struck down. That's right. Yeah. So the destroying angel comes. There's the ten plagues, and the final plague is the destroying angel, who's going to go and kill all the firstborn of Egypt. Um, and uh, so God commands the Israelites to slaughter a lamb. It's on the 14th of Nisan, which is, is the Passover date. And take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost and on the lintels. And when the angel comes with his big sword or his sickle or whatever he's got, he's going to see the blood on the door and he passes over. And he doesn't kill the firstborn son who's in the, in the house. And that is prophetic of Christ's sacrifice. Okay, And the firstborn is kept alive by a Christ's sacrifice because all of us in essence are, are the firstborn, okay? Because we are sons and daughters in the firstborn, the true firstborn who is Jesus Christ. And then Christ, of course, is the Lamb, all right? Now, uh, so that's the atonement that takes place. Now, what's the next great salvific, salvific event that takes place with the, with the Israelites? What's the, the natural... Uh, geographical reality that they have to come up against. The crossing of the Red Sea, okay? So they, they're, they're free, they go out of Egypt, alright? And then Pharaoh changes his mind, he says, that's it, I'm, I'm, we're going to go back after those guys. And so he gets, he harnesses up his chariots and his horses, and he gets his big army together, and they go chasing uh, after the Israelites. And the, the Israelites, they basically, they're between the devil and the deep blue sea. And I think that's where the saying probably came from, I think. So you've got Pharaoh who represents the devil, and then you've got the deep blue sea, which is the Red Sea in this case, actually. It's not blue, but red. Okay. And uh, so everybody's mad at Moses. Moses, you, you cornered us. What are you doing? And so what happens is, uh, through Moses, God works in an astounding miracle, and he parts the Red Sea. And all the Israelites go through it, 
Now what happens when the Egyptians try to go through it? The seas closes over and destroys them all. Now what would that be uh, sort of symbolic of in the Christian era? I'm sorry? Okay. Uh, it's baptism. Okay? So, uh, all throughout the New Testament, the baptism is likened to the deliverance of the Red Sea. Okay? So, at the Red Sea, if you can, if you can think about the story, you have the, the devil and you have his minions, essentially, chasing after this soul. Okay? And the soul goes through the, the sea just like we are baptized in water. So St. Paul specifically says in Corinthians chapter 10, he says, all our fathers were uh, baptized in the sea and in the clouds. Okay, All our fathers were baptized in the sea and in the clouds. Now the cloud references, there was one more sort of important thing that took place with the, um, with the Israelites, and that is uh, they had a huge cloud that, that followed them and, and kind of protected them. And it was a cloud in the day, and at night it was a big, huge pillar of fire. Okay, and that was the presence of God. And there probably was an angel in it that represented God's person that was also prophetic of Jesus Christ as well. And that could be something we, we get in and we talk about. So they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. So that's a type of baptism. And then Paul goes on and he says, And they all ate the spiritual, uh, they all drank the spiritual drink and ate the spiritual food that was given to them. So after the Red Sea, when they're going through the wilderness, what, what are they? What are they eating? They're eating manna, and then for water, there's this rock that puts out water for them. Okay, the rock is a symbol of Christ, and that's and the water that comes out is the spiritual drink that we receive in the chalice, okay, of the Eucharist. And then the manna is symbolic of the uh, the, the bread, okay, the hosts that we receive. So that's the body and the blood of Christ. It's spiritual food, spiritual drink. And it's strength for us as we make it through the wilderness towards what? Where are the Israelites heading? The promised land. And so that, what it is, is the wilderness is a type of our life and our journey as we head towards our eschatological destiny, which is heaven and the resurrection ultimately. Okay? Uh, are you guys cold? Are you guys resentful that the door's open right now? Are you feeling bitter and resentful towards the other side? Little by little, I'm watching your eyes go like, these people are not making me happy. People are not making me happy. Okay, we had a scheduling, it was a mistake that we, we made, the scheduling-wise, so I really apologize for that. We should have had them come in much earlier, and whatever, something should have been different, but anyway. Um, it's a good thing, you know, giving blood, right, it's a very, very good thing. Right. So we hope people's lives are being saved by the, by the blood of So, we can offer that little bit of cold up for the for whoever's going to be... I'm sorry? I'm sorry for this cold. We no, it's okay. Okay, thank you, thank, so you. thank you. God bless you. Um... So then it's the promised land, and we're heading towards the promised land, and we were baptized Christians, and we draw strength from the Eucharist to make it to heaven. And that's, that's the whole um, Christian economy of the sacraments that's reflected in these events. Well, uh, we're gonna, so, so setting aside all of those events, we're going to focus on one very special event, and that is Moses' reception of the law uh, at Sinai. Okay, so that's where we're at today. 
So Moses, and then I, I titled this the Day of the Church, the Day of the Church, and hopefully this that will make sense to you as we go on here. So if we begin here, there's a beautiful, this is a beautiful 19th century painting of, what does that look like to you guys? Mount Sinai. Yep, of Mount Sinai, okay. Now there is, uh, historically speaking, um, I've spent years and years and years studying the Gospels, and uh, I, have, I've, I have studied with, under, and have interacted with people who have all spectrums of, of faith or not faith. Some people who have little bit of faith or no, none at all, who are even atheists, and some people who are Jewish people, or some people who are Christians, Protestants, or Catholics. And uh, I've spent a ton of time thinking about the historicity of the Gospels. And the Gospels are really kind of in a, in the New Testament in general, is kind of in a different category because it's it's very historically. Uh, what, do, what do I want to say? We have. We have so much historical documentation to the New Testament era. We can plug all the events of the, of the New Testament into these other events that we know about from other sources in a very detailed and specific way. So, for example, there's like two main dates for when Christ was, was crucified, and scholars debate over one another, but it's like two main dates to the day. They have it to the day. That's how, how specific it is. Now, the Old Testament's not like that. Okay, The Old Testament is more kind of, we don't have as... Has, have as much um, sort of uh, historical background to pin it down to. So, for example, historians debate about... Well, some, some historians think that the Exodus never happened. Okay, now I think that's, that's unduly skeptical. I think it did happen, and I think you can just... You can assume that and believe that, even if you don't have any faith whatsoever. All right? Even if you're not religious, you don't have to have any religious presuppositions that something like the Exodus is a relatively reasonable candidate for a historical event. Okay? But just to let you know, some scholars are so skeptical, they don't think the Exodus happened at all. And they start tracing the history of the Israelite nation from about 1000 uh, BC onwards. Okay, that's, no one then, no one disputes from 1000 BC onwards. Uh, but they don't necessarily, they think that possibly maybe some of the, some of the ancestors of the Israelites came from Egypt, but there's like legend or something that was mixed up in their memory and, that was so. That, that's kind of a, a real skeptical side, uh, but it is for for scholars who think that it is a real historical event, they place it in one of two dates. They place it either in the 13th century BC or in the 15th century BC. It's one or the other. I myself tend towards the 13th century BC, so we're talking about maybe about 1250, 1230 BC. Okay, it's roughly uh, Mount Sinai itself. Again, that's also debated about where where this is. Now, there's a traditional site. And there's a monastery that was built there in the 4th century, St. Catherine's Monastery, very important, very famous monastery. is built right at the bottom of the traditional Mount Sinai. And I think there's a, you can make a good case of that is actually the real Mount Sinai. But there's two or three other candidates for, the, for Mount Sinai um, amongst the historians. Okay. 
It's turning into a little bit of a fiasco tonight, guys. I apologize. And I apologize to whoever's listening to this recording as well. This is, not, this is, a, this is anything but a, a tight, organized class we're performing right now. So um, Mount Sinai, I think you can make a good case that it really is at this particular place. You can go there as a pilgrim. It's a wonderful place to go to. It's probably dangerous right now because Egypt's not a good situation. But if any, if any time anything cools down, it really is a, a remarkable place of pilgrimage. Beautiful monastery, extremely important. Has incredible amount of Christian history there. All right, and and there's this, there's a there's a site where they think the burning bush actually was, and all this kind of stuff. Some of that might be a little bit of legend. We don't know, but um, it, nonetheless, it's a very very fascinating site to go to. And so then here's a beautiful uh, painting based on actually like this is kind of how Mount Sinai actually looks. You know, you can get pictures of it, and that's basically how it would look. And then the the artist puts the fire on top of it, okay? And you get the sense of the Israelites all camped out there in the plain, all right? So let's open up to Exodus 19, 3 through 6. And we'll start to read uh, this, this event of the Sinai event together. And so I'm going to need some brave, uh, some brave uh, volunteers. So who wants to read? Okay. Nancy's going to read Exodus 19, uh, verses 3 through 6. Moses went up the mountain to God. Then the Lord called him and said, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, Tell the Israelites, you have, see, you have seen for yourself how I treated the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you here to myself. Therefore, if you hearken to my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my special possession, dearer to me than all other people. Though all the earth is mine, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That is what you must tell the Israelites. Okay, very good. So this is the sort of Magna Carta of the uh, covenant that God is going to make uh, with Israel is, and that they're going to be the benefit that God is giving to them is that they will be a nation that is special to Him, that is dear to Him, and it's a, a nation of priests, and it's a holy, uh, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, and uh, that is really, really key. And that's what we're we're called to be as the, the the Christian church. We are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so we'll see how eventually all this is very relevant to Christianity. So let's go on to, uh, okay, so now this is Moses going up the Mount, uh, Mount uh, Sinai, okay? And that's my artistry, okay? <laughs> I want you to know that, all right? I, I, wor- I slaved over that, all right? So that's Moses going up the mountain, okay? And it's on Mount Horeb there, Mount Sinai, when, when God spoke this word to him. Now, do you see the nation of Israel anywhere? No? So it's Moses all alone at this point. So let's go to... Uh, the next few verses, Exodus 19, 7 to 8a. So the first half of verse 8. Um, can we get uh, another volunteer? Charlie, you want to do it? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. 7a. All right. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to okay, the Lord. That's good. So, 
we didn't want to have we don't want to read the part where it says then Moses reported all the words to the Lord. So right now it's just Moses goes down to the people and he reports to the people the words of the Lord, and then the people give their assent. Now, if you get the kind of the, the dynamic of the covenant and the agreement that God is making with the Israelites, it's very important. God is the one that initiates the covenant. This idea did not come from the Israelites. They didn't think of this. They didn't think, hey, you know, let's make a deal with God. What do you think? Let's go see if we can make a deal with God. It, has not, it was totally God's idea, completely his initiative. And moreover, he really just, he didn't really ask them whether they wanted to be saved from, from Egypt. He saved them from Egypt. And then he says, in light of this grand favor that I have done for you, I am going to make you this nation, so forth and so on. And then these are the terms, the stipulations of this deal that I'm making with you. Now, scholars say that the covenant that is we're looking at here between God and the Israelites, it follows uh, the pattern of a certain kind of treaty that we can find made in the ancient Near East between kings and their people. It's very interesting. And so the king will start out the treaty by saying, I have done this for you. I have done X, Y, and Z. Here are the benefits I have provided for you. Now, I, by doing this, I am, by this, this great act of beneficence that I have done towards you, what I am doing is I'm taking you under my wings by virtue of that great act of beneficence. I'm taking you under my protection and uh, I'm going to basically be your guard and your protector. Now, if you want to maintain that relationship, that beneficent relationship that I have initiated and done and everything else and set up, here are the terms. And that's a, a kind of treaty that kings would make with their people that can be evidenced by all of these ancient Near Eastern cultures, and it's just like what we see in uh, God and the Israelites and, their, and the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. It's an identical pattern. Very interesting. Um, so, let's see here. Here's my next... Oh, see, Moses goes down now. Okay? And you don't quite see the people yet. All right? But he talks to them, though. He talks to the people. Um, now, it's very interesting, though, because... Yeah, okay, so let me, let's go to the next, next phase, and I think it'll become a little more clear. Okay, so who's going to do Exodus 19, 8b to 13? Actually, let me just do that. I'll make it easier. <laughs> All right, so it's the second half of verse 8, right? And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses goes back up the mountain. That's my point, all right? And the Lord said to Moses, Lo, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Then Moses, okay, now there's a little bit of a repeat. There's, there's some narrative complexity to all of this. Sometimes it's like a scene, it's the same scene, but it's repeated in another way. All right, and that's kind of what's happening here. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Take heed that you do not go up into the mountain, or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Okay, So that's it. All right, now, this uh, um, Moses goes, this is more artwork here, 
He goes back up to the mountain, okay, and that's what God says to him while he's on the mountain. He says, go back. To, uh, Moses then tells the Lord the, what the people said. So do you get what's going on here? you got the people on one hand, you got God on another, and Moses is going from God. Okay, so God's t- telling him something. He's going to the people. People tell him something, and he goes back to God, and he tells that. And it happens back and forth, back and forth. Now that's a perfect example of mediatorship. All right? Now, God is omniscient, and he knows what the people are saying. He doesn't need Moses to go and tell him that. But that's how he ordained it and how he arranged it. Okay, uh, Because he appoints mediators, and he, he works through mediators. And ultimately, all these mediator figures, Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Moses, are prophetic types of Jesus Christ, who is the supreme mediator between God and man. Okay? So Moses is going back up and down, up and down, up and down, right? And uh, so one of the things, so there's this great, what's called a theophany. A theophany is the appearance of God. So there's going to be this great theophany that's going to take place on what day? Third. The third, third day. day. What, else does, what else happens in the third day in our mind as Christians? The resurrection. The resurrection. Okay. I, don't, I, I think there's a meaning in that, all right? And we'll see how possibly there might be some connection there. All right, so uh, he's going to come down. He wants Moses to consecrate the people. They're going to wash their garments. You'll see, in effect, actually, when Moses then goes and he commands the people and he instructs them, more details about this consecration. It involves actually not uh, having relations with their spouses. Okay, um, and actually, there's a Jewish tradition that some of the ancient church fathers also affirm is that after from Moses is from the beginning of his prophetic mission onwards, Moses ceased having relations with his wife. All right, and was basically lived like incontinence or celibacy. All right, so from that point on, Moses became like this kind of a sacred vessel, basically. All right. Uh, okay, so now also a trumpet is 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 mentioned. Okay, so God says on the third day I'm going to come down with smoke, fire, all of the stuff. It's going to be very dramatic, and you're going to hear a loud, loud trumpet. All right. Now this trumpet here, Yovel, it's a ram's horn, and it's going to summon the people to the lowest slope of the mountain. This word, Yovel, is synonymous with uh, it's uh, Keren HaYovel, which is, means the horn of the ram. And we can read about this in Joshua. Um, and it was really the same thing as the shofar. Has anybody ever heard of a shofar? Okay. Uh, John has, huh? You have... Um, so, and you have two, Charlie? Yeah. So shofars is kind of like it's, it's it's part of a Jewish religion and it's like a ram's horn. It's all kind of swirly, but it's used as a you know they actually make a horn out a horn out of it. Okay, and it makes a pretty neat noise, and uh, that's what the ancient Israelites used for their horn. And uh, it's a long wind instrument shaped like a horn. And then also I got some of these texts, so we'll look at some of these texts. Okay, so in Joshua six five, this is Jericho. This is when the children of Israel, after they cross the Jordan River, and they come into the Promised Land, and they're going to take over the first enemy, and that is the, the inhabitants of Jericho. And so this is... Does anybody remember the story about Jericho and how it's taken? How did the Israelites defeat Jericho? Charlie? They just they kept on going around, they yep. around it, and around it. And yeah, they circle it seven times, and they blow on horns. Blow on horn and just... Yeah, and then it falls. The walls fall down, okay? So, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn... Uh, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, the shofar, 
Then all of the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So the trumpet is a sign of war. It's a sign of victory. Okay, it's a sign of salvation in a certain sense. All right. Now here is an interesting passage. This is from the New Testament. St. Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ. And so Paul says, For the Lord himself, this is the second coming of Christ, will descend from heaven. What, what other descent are we seeing in Exodus? What, where's the descent? Descent coming, sure, coming down from, from the mountain. That could be connection. But more fundamentally, who's coming down on top of the mountain? God. God is going to descend and come down on top of the mountain. That's also very interesting. I've talked about this a lot is God is not spatial. God does not exist in space, okay? So how is it in the Old Testament we see all of these things about God coming down, going up, coming down, going up, coming down. So when the Tower of Babel is being built, God says, let us go down and see what they're doing, okay? And then Sodom and Gomorrah, God says, now I've heard that this is happening, and so let me go down and investigate and see if it's true. And so you have all of this descent. Now, what happens, though, actually, when, you know, remember we talked in the seasons past, who does God sort of affect this descent through? What beings? Angels. So it's all of these angels and angelophanies and appearances of angels that take place. So whenever God uses the spatial language of moving up and down, moving up and down, it's always angels that he's talking about. Angels show up and speak on his behalf. Sometimes you realize it because the angels say the Lord is going to do this and the Lord is going to do that. Other times you're not sure because the angel says, I, the Lord your God, did X, Y, and Z, and the angel is speaking in the first person as God. And so it's like it's hard to tell that it's even an angel. Okay? And so that's what happens on Sinai. God comes down on top of Sinai, and there's a very uh, strongly embedded tradition, both within Judaism and Christianity, that the entire Sinai event is all angels. Angels perform the entire thing. It's like a big light show performed by angels. Okay, we're going, we're going to see how that's the case. But this was all of this spatialness talk about God is really prophetic of the incarnation of God actually becoming a man and being in space for real, and not just by show like in the Old Testament, but for real in the New Testament. Um, and then you have, so here's Christ. He's going to descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangels called, more talk about angels, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So we talked about the third day and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the end day resurrection, okay, at the descent with a horn. So the, I, I think there's a lot of connections here, okay? So here's, uh, who wants to read Exodus 19, 14 through 15? Gary, you want to give it a shot? Then, then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and had them sanctify themselves and wash their garments. He warned them, be ready for the third day. Have no intercourse with any woman. Okay. So that's how Moses interprets the command to consecrate or to sanctify um, the children of Israel, or possibly God had specifically commanded that to him, but it's just not recounted earlier on. So Moses goes back down the mountain, you see, and he tells the people. So you get the, I wanted to draw your attention to the going up and down and up and down, and he goes back and forth and he's talking to the people. Okay, now, here we arrive. This is the great day, the theophany. The day of the church is referred to in the tradition, the day of the assembly. And 
Uh, we'll see how I, I import this word church into it. Now that's a nice little little cartoon there. I think I think that's pretty pretty good. Uh, so you have it's the morning time. It takes place in the morning. Okay, not at night, but it takes place early early morning. And uh, you know probably there's so much cloud and lightning that the sky does get dark, and it's as if it's night. But it's important to remember it's in the morning. God comes down on Mount Sinai. The children of Israel come out to him. Okay, so now we go verses 16 to 19. So the, here it is. This is the big event. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. All right, now if this is not a dramatic scene, I don't know what is, okay? This makes good Hollywood. Who, who saw the Charlton Heston, right? The Ten Commandments yeah. shown every Easter, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, Tony's suggestion was to take Charlton Heston's face and put it on my stick figure. <laughs> <laughs> so the third day arrives, the Lord descends upon Mount Sinai, and, and Moses leads the people out to the lowest slope of the mount, but they can't go too far, okay, because they've got boundaries. There might have even been a fence set up, okay? Uh, there's a sound of a trumpet, so you got the shofar, third day resurrection. Okay, these are kind of hints there. Uh, in their sight, Moses speaks to God, and God answers him with a voice, or loudly amid thunderclaps. Now, another purpose why God is doing this is he wants to give credibility to Moses as his prophet. Okay? Because Moses is going to be speaking on behalf of God. Now, it's part of common sense to say, if someone comes to you and they say, hey, guess what? God told me something, and uh, what I say is God's word, and if you disobey God's word, which I happen to be transmitting to you, you're like, you're dead? Okay, you, you better know that this guy's really a problem. I mean, there's got to be some proof. Like, show me the goods, buddy, okay? Could you work a miracle? Maybe could you raise from the dead end on the third day? Something like that, so that we could believe that you're actually speaking on behalf of God. And so that's what we see with Moses is that there's all of these signs that surround him so that people know that he really is a prophet of God. And God does that on purpose. So there's no way that anybody can have any doubts or questions about the legitimacy of his prophetic uh, ministry and his prophetic vocation. So um, that's why. So you can imagine this. Here's Moses. Now, I don't think Moses went back up into the mountain. I think that he was kind of at the base with the people. He led them out. And God starts to speak. And Moses starts to speak, and God starts to speak in response, and all the people are seeing this. So they know that God and Moses have got a kind of a a close relationship. Now, what I just read right there, okay, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and this is in verse 19, and Moses spoke, and then God answered him in thunder. Now, I wonder if those are actually the Ten Commandments, when it says God spoke. Are those the Ten Commandments? Possibly, I'm not sure. Okay, but eventually the, the Ten Commandments come out, uh, and we'll see that. There we go. You see? Masterpiece. Okay. So now, what, what's this little thing? What, what is all this stuff? What's that? That's the people. Okay. 
Good, good. So that, that was clear. So, and then what's on top of the mountain? Fire. There we go. Okay, good. So this is here's Moses, and God speaks from Sinai. Moses is speaking to them. The people are witnessing this, okay? So uh, now we've got this other account that it seems like it's a little bit of a repetition. I, I could probably do a whole class on like how... Exodus was put together and composed because there seems to be a lot of repetitions going on. It can be a little bit confusing, uh, but it would be too much time to talk about. So in these verses here, verses 20 to 24, Moses goes up the mountain. The Lord gives him more instructions for the people. Aaron and the priests are mentioned. Are these latter the sons of Aaron called priests by anticipation, or are they a different set of priests? So hopefully we'll start talking about the priesthood, okay? Because up until this point, the priesthood has been transmitted... um, through the firstborn son. Okay, so the firstborn son in the kind of the tribe, the tribal lineage, is the chief priest and has the right to represent the people to God to offer sacrifices on their behalf. And that's how it's gone all the way from, you know, from Adam all the way up until to Noah. Remember, Noah gets off the ark and he offers sacrifice, so his oldest son would have had that, that uh, prerogative to offer sacrifice, so forth and so on. It goes through Abraham. Abraham offers sacrifice, so forth and so on. Moses is offering sacrifice, but at some point there's a kind of a change in how priesthood works, and there's a specific tribe that's set up, a specific class or group of people, and that is Aaron and his sons become the priests. And then the Levitical tribe become the kind of like the deacons, and they help out Aaron and his sons. Okay, And so there's a transfer of the priesthood, and the priesthood separates away from like the chief. All right, So before Moses... All authority is invested in the oldest male figure of the tribe. He's like the king and the priest and everything all put together. All right, But beginning from Moses onwards, that's, that, that function splits up. The king goes one way, like the chieftain goes one way, and then the priesthood goes in a, a very specific route. All right? And then eventually David comes around. And David, in a certain way, encompasses both the priesthood and the, and the kingship. But, you know, that if he does, it's really by way of exception because by his time, the kings and the priests are really two different things. And then when Christ comes, they come back together again. And so that firstborn priesthood is then kind of reunited in Jesus Christ, okay, who is both king because he's Messiah, but he's also our high priest as well. Um, because he, he, has, he has a priesthood after the priesthood of Melchizedek. And if we can remember Melchizedek, is a king and a priest. All right, so it's both. So the kinghood and the, the the kingship and the priesthood come back together. But anyway, so there's thought about you know priests here, and just a little bit of reflection on priests. All right, so let me read that actually, uh, twenty to twenty four. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze. Many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out upon them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thy thyself didst charge us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Now, very interesting. The Lord speaks in the third person concerning himself sometimes. You see that the first person, the third person switches back and forth, back and forth. So notice, this is God speaking, and he says this. 
Uh, do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So here's the Lord referring to himself in the third person. All right, It's probably because it's angels speaking. And you're going back and forth. Angelic ministers are creating essentially sounds in the air in a really dramatic way. Like it's not goofy. It's not just a, a little blowhorn or something. I mean, this is very, very powerful, dramatic uh, special effects that are taking place and voice and everything. And you can't even imagine what, uh, how powerful this was. But it's really angelic beings who are behind the, all of this. And they're doing it, of course, on behalf of God and it, according to His will. It's not like they're independent agents you know, playing God or something like that. So, uh, Moses goes back up the mountain and that's where he gets those instructions. Now... Moses go, so now Moses is going to go back down the mountain and tell the people. So that's verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and told them. All right? So now he's back down, you see? All right. Now we've got Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, and these are the Ten Commandments. All right? And uh, the Ten Commandments are extremely important uh, for many, many reasons. I don't know if I can even say first or second, but one of the reasons, at least, why they're really important is because they are a perfect revealed expression of the natural law. Okay, Now, this is the law of God embedded in nature. And we can know this law through our reason. All right, We can know it through reason as well as through revelation. Uh, all the things that are taught by the Ten Commandments, hypothetically speaking, hypothetically speaking, okay, like in principle, can be known through human reason. We can know that there's one God, that He alone deserves a certain kind of veneration that's proper to Him and that can't be communicated to any created thing. Okay, so no idolatry is a sin, uh, and we can know that through reason. Um, he talks about the worship that's due to Him. We can know through reason that if God is the creator of human beings, and human beings by nature are social, society as a whole owes Him Worship and, and a social expression of worship. That's why we gather on Sundays, okay, as a community to express worship to God. We can know that through reason. All right, that's not isn't common sense that we owe that to God, who happens to be the creator of all things, and our very life is in His hands. He takes care of everything, so we offer gratitude to Him through that. Um, we've got uh, about not taking the Lord's name in vain. That has to do with oaths. So if you swear by a higher power, if you say God is my witness that X, Y, and Z are true, all right, it's common sense that it's wrong to to break that, okay? And you'd actually, you're basically are, are kind of putting a curse on yourself by doing that. Uh, fourth commandment is honor your father and mother. All of us here, maybe Sarah is the one that might dispute that one, but all of us here know by reason that that's true and that we should honor our father and mother, all right? Um, uh, the fifth commandment has to do with murder. All right, we know that this is something that, that every, every person wants to live. The right to life is the most foundational right, and all other human rights are based on the right to life. Okay, if you, if you violate the right to life, you don't have, you, there's nothing left, right? Okay, so right to life is foundational. Adultery, okay, marriage is the foundational building block of society, and adultery is a violation of that, and it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's really a crime against society in one way or another. Um, stealing. Uh, lying, um, and then coveting. So all of these things are things that we can know through reason if our reason's functioning properly. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Doesn't always mean that it's functioning properly, but uh, and God also reveals these to us so just in case our reason is kind of uh, a little weak and needs some help. All right. So 
the Ten Commandments are very important because they're an expression of the natural law. Now, when Jesus, there's, Jesus is like a new Moses, and he goes up on a new mountain right in the beginning of the Gospel. What mountain is that? What? Well, no, it's not Mount Sinai, but it, it, it's like Mount Sinai, though. Because he... Well, the mountain's not named, so it was a little bit of a trick question. But he's known for giving the Sermon on the Mount, right? Okay. So the whole gospel starts with Jesus' first recorded preaching in Matthew is on a mountain. So he goes up to this mountain, he gives a Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a discussion of the Ten Commandments, essentially. That's what it is. He talks about adultery, he talks about marriage, uh, stealing, all of these sorts of things, swearing falsely, all these things. So he goes over the Ten Commandments... But more specifically, he kind of goes over the second half of the Ten Commandments, the ones that have to do with our relationships with human beings. So the first Decalogue, like if you can imagine, you know, you get the pictures of Moses, he's got two tablets, right? Mm -hmm. So on one tablet, it's got all the commandments that have to do with God. And then the second tablet has all the commandments that have to do with our fellow human beings. And Jesus comes up and he basically talks about that second tablet. That's the Sermon on the Mount. So, and he says... um, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, uh, the law shall not... Let me read it, because actually, oh, my memory fails me. Okay, yeah, he says, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay? For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now the kingdom of heaven is the the term that denotes the Christian dispensation, the Christian era. We're living right now in the kingdom of heaven. And so if any of us break the least of the Ten Commandments and teach others to do so, we will be least in this era. All right. Um, uh, But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so all of the the Ten Commandments are relevant to us. Now, what's not relevant to us are all the other laws that come after the Ten Commandments that have to do with the Israelite civil um, law and religious law about keeping kosher, not eating pork, and those sorts of things. Those are not laws that are according to the natural law. So it's not like you could sit around and use your reason and say, Ah, definitely it's wrong to eat pork. No doubt about it, it's a sin. Okay, So there's a whole element of the Old Testament law that was given as kind of a prophetic indication of things to come. And they kept it because what they were doing, in their keeping of it, they were basically creating patterns and images that were prophetic of Jesus Christ and of the, um, and of the, second, uh, and, uh, and of the coming of the Messiah. So, but the Ten Commandments are not like that. The Ten Commandments are, they hold true for Christians. Christians have to obey the Ten Commandments just as much as uh, the Old Testament people of God. And uh, they're part of the natural law. They don't change. They're part of who we are. They're hardwired into us. So, when God spoke all these words, and then we go over the Ten Commandments. Now, when the Ten Words, now the, the Ten Commandments are called words, actually, in the Hebrew. If you want to do a really literal translation, it's called the Ten Words. All right? So when the ten words are spoken, Moses appears to be at the foot of the mountain with the people. In any event, the people hear the Lord speaking the ten words from heaven. So that is really remarkable, because remember, up until this point, we've had Moses going up, talking to God, and then going back to the Israelites and telling them what God has said, 
And then going back to God and telling them, but for the first time now, God is speaking and the Israelites are hearing God speak. Now remember, God is not corporeal. He's not bodily. He doesn't have a voice box. But when he can, through all these different theophanies and angelophanies, he basically takes created matter and he creates sound in the air. And so there was basically a huge voice booming from heaven over Mount Sinai saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods but me. I mean, that is incredible. (laughs) A huge booming voice coming from heaven speaking that. And in the Jewish tradition, they call it a bat kol, which means a daughter of a voice. But every once in a while, God will choose to reveal himself that way through a voice from heaven. And it happened a few times in the life and ministry of Christ. Okay, So what did we just celebrate? Christmas. We did. Christmas, the Christmas season. How do we end off the Christmas season? Epiphany. The epiphany, but how do we end off the Christmas season? The baptism of the Lord. What was the voice? There was a voice from heaven. Okay, it says, this is my beloved son. So that was a bot coal coming from heaven. There's another event, very interesting, in the Gospel of John. Right at the end, towards the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus' public ministry, it's like in chapter 11 or 12, and um, he says, Father, this is Jesus praying, Father, glorify your name. Because Jesus is ready, he's getting ready to go to the cross, he knows it's imminent, they're coming, they're about to arrest him, all that kind of stuff, it's all the... The bad deal is going, to, is, is, is going to come down pretty soon. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then he hears a voice, not just him, but everybody, hears a voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. And, so, and, and it says, John says that some people said um, that it sounded like it, or some people said it had just thundered. So there was this huge noise, and it was actually the voice of God saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. But in the event, people were confused. They said, well, whoa, that's just, maybe that was a great thunder clap that just took place. And others said, but it was an angel that spoke. So maybe it was an angel. You know, so there's this kind of confusion because of this great voice that booms down from heaven. Well, that's what happens on Mount Sinai. Is You have uh, hun- uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of the Israelites are there gathered on the plains before Mount Sinai. And God's voice is booming from heaven the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words. There we go. See? See? And so that's the Hebrew right up there. It's Anochi Adonai. It's the first words of when he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, now, we start talking a little bit here about angels, all right? Now, were angels the agents of the sound of the trumpet and the other sensory phenomena that were experienced here? Remember, our text from Thessalonians when Christ descends, he descends at the trumpet, of possibly an archangel's calling a trumpet sound. Okay, um, the Jewish commentators concluded that this was the case on the basis of Deuteronomy thirty-three two. Now, here's another ancient Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, and Josephus is writing right towards the end of the first century. Okay, so it's very ancient, right around the time the New Testament was written, and he represents King Herod. This is. Herod, I'm not sure which Herod it is. It might be, it might be the Herod that was uh, the, the king when Jesus was born. He represents Herod as saying to the people, uh, For ourselves we have learned from God the most excellent of our doctrines and the most holy part of our law through angels. 
And that's in his Antiquities, book 15, chapter 5. Now, there's passages from the New Testament that appear to confirm this. All right? So let's go back to Deuteronomy 33. This, is the, this was the verse that the ancient Jewish commentators used to, to infer that all of Sinai was an angelic, um, was basically conducted by angels. So it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. With him were myriads of holy ones. Holy ones are, are angels. At his right, a host of his own. A host is a great army. So when we say the Lord of hosts, we're referring primarily to the angelic armies. And then we have Psalm 68, 17, which is maybe not as clear, but it's there. It says, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the sanctuary. Now, it's really important to know when God shows up, like, okay, let me, let me do, uh, here's a joke. Uh, I was, um, um, at my, my buddy Peter Van Leeshout, uh, who's now Father Peter Van Leeshout, at his ordination, which just took place this past um, June, his first Mass was in his, his, his childhood um, uh, church in Livonia. And Bishop Matano came. Uh, and Bishop Clark went to uh, Father Sergio's first Mass, and Bishop Matano went to P- Father Peter's first Mass. So Bishop Matano comes in, and uh, you know the bishop comes and... It's part of the pontificale, which is the, the rites that are surround. So there's rites that surround the mass when priests do it, and then there's rites that surround the bishop when the bishop does it. Okay, and part of the pontificale is that the bishop will have two uh, um, like people attending him, ideally deacons, but in this case it was priests. Okay, now that it, it basically. What do you want to say? It heightens the kind of impression, the sense of who the bishop is. If he's got two people, they're not really doing anything. It's an ornament, you know. What I mean, like he doesn't really need two people, but but it it, it heightens the of his position. All right. Now everybody knows that, right? If you walk around with bodyguards, what, what do you think? You know, this person's pretty important, right? And so it's the same thing in the Old Testament. When God shows up, He shows up with tons and tons of these really tough angels who are ready to kick someone's butt. <laughs> And uh, it, it basically, it's part of God's manifesting himself. He never shows up alone. That's the interesting thing about God. Whenever God's revealed in the Old Testament, there's always these angelic beings around him. All right. Uh, so he's got his chariots. So here's now, this is the New Testament. This is the book of Acts. And I think I've mentioned this quite a bit. Is In Acts 7 is really a wonderful, like, uh, if you read that, you don't need to take this course anymore. Because... St. Stephen in Acts 7 does everything that I'm trying to do in this course is he sums up all of salvation history in one chapter. Okay, And so he's on trial and uh, they say he looks like an angel and there's all this talk about angels throughout his speech and his face glows, glows like an angel, it says. Um, and he gives this speech and he sums up all of his salvation history. And he talks about the events of Moses. He says, uh, which of the prophets, and so here's Stephen basically accusing his judges, which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Okay, So Stephen is expressing this Jewish tradition that it's angels who, who, were, who transmitted the law on Sinai. Now here's St. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Here's Paul. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the offspring or till the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. 
and it was ordained by angels through a mediator or an intermediary. That intermediary or that mediator is Moses, but it was ordained through angels. So it comes from angels, basically, really, or ultimately from God, through angels, through Moses, to the people of Israel. So this whole series of mediation that takes place. Uh, here's the, the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 2. For if the message declared by angels was valid and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So when you read Hebrews in the beginning, there's all this discussion about angels. Uh, And actually it was in today's uh, mass readings in the morning. Um, It's talking about how angels, how actually Jesus didn't become an angel. He became, uh, took flesh and blood and became human beings because he was going to redeem human beings and not angels. So there's all this discussion about angels, and it's what the Epistle of Hebrews is doing is saying is that the gospel is the answer to the Old Testament, because um, the every transgression receives a just retribution. Now, there's there's a there's a interesting thing. I'm going to try to pull this off. I've never personally seen anybody do this uh, like live. I've never known anybody to do this, so I'm going to be the only one that I know that does this. But I've definitely read a lot of people doing this. Is that there's kind of two dimensions to the Old Testament law. There's an inner dimension and an outer dimension. And the inner dimension we can refer to as the Word of God. And as such, the Word of God sanctifies, it's holy, it's salvific, it's good, it's life-giving. But then there's an outer dimension to the Word of God. I'm sorry, there's an outer dimension to the Old Testament law. And the outer dimension is really uh, condemning. And it's something that we need to be saved from. And it's really the gospel is the answer to it. And so in the New Testament, the Old Testament law is contrasted over against the gospel. And the gospel is that salvific, life-giving word that gives us life, that saves us, that forgives sins, um, that sanctifies us, that draws us close to God and makes us his sons and daughters. Uh, and so that's what Hebrews is talking about. It's basically contrasting the Old Testament and the New Testament. But uh, it's just by the by, the Old Testament was declared by angels. The Old Testament law was declared by angels. So again, we see another passage in the New Testament where they take this Jewish tradition that it was angels that came down on Mount Sinai. But what I'm going to be doing in, in contradistinction to Hebrews in the New Testament is I'm going to be showing how the Old Testament law has this inner dimension to it. Now, the external scary part of the Old Testament law can be kind of clear because it's pretty scary so far. You've got thunder and lightning and darkness and clouds. The people are so afraid, after they hear God's voice speaking to them the Ten Commandments, they say to Moses, okay, okay, we're going to die, and you just tell him to stop right now, and we'll let you, he'll, you just speak to him. And whatever he says to you, we'll believe, and we'll listen to you, and we'll do what you say. Okay, because there's a lot of fear involved in that. And then the New Covenant is a, is a covenant of mercy, so it's in contrast to the kind of fear of the Old Testament. But with all that's being true, at the same time, what I want to emphasize is how the Old the Testament law itself was a kind of a, a because it was the Word of God, it had a sanctifying and salvific effect, and so it was like the New Testament, okay, in that, in that regards. So let's go back to Exodus now. And we'll read verses 18 to 20. So we're in chapter 20, 18 to 20. Who wants to be uh, um, brave here for us and read? Charlie, okay, go ahead. All right. Now when all the people, <coughs> now when all the people perceived 
of the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will hear. But let not God speak to us lest we die. Very good. So, um, it's clear that God himself has spoken. And uh, it's so fearful that the people think they're going to die. Now, this whole thing about death, hearing God, seeing God, and dying is going to be key. All right, and I'm going to do. I'm going to follow some Jewish interpreters because I think they're correct, and that there's other passages in the Bible that uh, support these Jewish interpreters. Um, and it's going to be kind of a little clever how I get into there. Hopefully, it's clever. <laughs> um, so. Let's, let's focus a little bit here on whether or not it's God himself that spoke and that the, whether the people heard God speak, okay? So if we go to Exodus 19.19, 19, uh, that was that original verse that we read. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Now, possibly that was the Ten Commandments, but we don't, I, I don't know. It's not really clear to me. I, I think there might be like a replay. Um, it's, sort of, it's like if you read very sophisticated novels, has anybody ever read uh, The Scarlet Letter? Okay, it, what? Um, who's he's like one of the best American authors? Is um, the man who wrote the Scarlet Letter? What's his name now? Can you remember? Nathaniel Hawthorne. Could be Hawthorne. Anyway, the author of the Scarlet Letter, um, he's very. He has a sophisticated thing where he's telling about these stories of these Puritans, and he's doing it at. It's like the narrative voice of the novel is um, it's a fictional itself, but it's very clever because it's a fictional narrator who is talking about these stories that he knows on the basis of tradition. Okay, and so he says, so um, Hester Prynne, I think is the woman's name, who's the main character. Hester Prynne did X, Y, and Z, and the elders of this of this of the town said this to her. But we also have it that this is what happened. And we also have it that this is what happened. And there's two or three different ways of portraying the same event. Okay? But from like a little different perspective, maybe a little bit of the facts are a little different. And I think that's sometimes what's happening in Exodus. You get these different perspectives about the same thing. Um, so now we've got Exodus 20, 22. The Lord said to Moses, thus... Uh, you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Okay, so I'm trying to show you how the, I, I believe very strongly the Bible is saying that God was speaking this great voice, the Ten Commandments. Now that becomes really clear in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy comes books later after Exodus, but Deuteronomy is like a, um, a condensation of the, of the events in Exodus, and it's an interpretation of the events of Exodus, alright? So here's Deuteronomy 5, verses 4 through 5. The Lord spoke with you, this is Moses speaking, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. Um, here's another passage. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. So it was the Ten Commandments. So between those two verses, this is 5.22, and then the other one was 5.4-5, through 5, there's another restatement of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are listed twice in the Bible, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. And so 
um, Moses basically uh, he's got bookmarkers, you know, in between the Ten Commandments as listed in Deuteronomy, and he begins them and he ends them by saying that God spoke this to you, you heard it, and He added no more. Now it will go on, and there'll be much more of the Old Testament laws given, but it's given just to Moses. It's not spoke uh, out loud in this big dramatic way that it was the way that the Ten Commandments were. Okay, so um, we've got about ten minutes here. Let's see if we can keep going through this. Um, here's another passage from Deuteronomy which is going to cause me to kind of springboard into another topic. I'm going to try to connect all the stuff that we're talking about to the New Testament and show how this, this event at Sinai is prophetic of the New Testament and the New Covenant people of God. So here's Deuteronomy 10.4. He wrote on the tables, as at the first writing, the ten words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. So that's the phrase that I want to draw your attention to. The day of the assembly. Okay, That's a, that's a good English translation of the Hebrew. The day of the assembly. Um, that word in, in Hebrew is kahal. Okay, it can be translated assembly. That's a good translation. All right, congregation would be another one. Good, another good translation. Like if you see uh, Jewish synagogues, it will say congregation, bet, whatever. It's probably kahal is the word. Okay. Okay. Now the early Jewish Christians in Jerusalem spoke of themselves as the ecclesia tuthau. All right. And um, just a little back up here, context here. Now, the first Christians were Jewish. All right, all, all the apostles of Christ were Jewish. Jesus, our Lord, is Jewish. Uh, his apostles are Jewish. Uh, all the early followers are Jewish. On the day of Pentecost, it was uh, the Feast of Pentecost, which is a Jewish feast. All right, and it was all Jews that were there. And uh, Jews were from different parts of the world, so they spoke different languages. But it was all all Jewish people there on the day of Pentecost. So. The church was Jewish for the first few years at least, and then little by little, Gentiles started to be incorporated into it. So um, it's important to talk about the, the first Jewish Christians. So the early Jewish Christians in Jerusalem spoke of themselves as the Ecclesia Tuthau, which is the Church of God. Okay, Ecclesia is church. Now, uh, in Spanish, what's, what's church in Spanish? Ecclesia. See, so the Spaniards get their Spanish word directly from the Greek, Ecclesia. All right. We get our word church, it's a German word, and I think it's, it goes originally back to uh, a Greek word that has like his kyrie, kyrie in it, which has to do with Lord or house of the Lord, Lord's house. Um, but in our English translations of the New Testament, we translate ecclesia with church. Okay. So this phrase, ecclesia tuthau, finds its origin in the usage of the word ecclesia in the... Now, what's the alexax? you remember? Can you guys recall that from all the different... What's the LXX? It's an abbreviation for... Uh, a, for the Septuagint, okay, with a 70. It's a, that's right, it means the 70. And uh, so I'll review this for you guys. It's very, very important. Okay, you'll see me draw from the Septuagint a lot. The Septuagint was a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Okay? And it was a translation that took place hundreds of years before Christ. And by the time Christ uh, came around and the Gospel was promulgated when it was promulgated outside the borders of Israel, and even in Israel, because Greek was spoken in Israel actually quite a lot. Not just Aramaic, but Greek quite a bit as well. 
Um, they use the Septuagint. That was the Bible translation they used. So just like if I wanted to preach out of the Bible, I'd use the Revised Standard Version. Well, what did the apostles use? They, they had a translation. They used the Septuagint. Okay? It's called the Septuagint because it was 70... Uh, the tradition is that 70 Jewish translators were responsible for translating um, uh, at least the five, first five books uh, of the Bible, Mo- the books of Moses. So it's important to study the Septuagint because it becomes a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because we, we know that the authors of the New Testament, they read and they preached from, and their audience read from the Septuagint. And so the language they use is Septuagintal. And you look at the Septuagint and you see how it translated the Hebrew, and you can bridge the Hebrew to the New Testament through the Septuagint. All right? So you've got uh, this phrase that the early Jewish Christians used, ecclesia tu theu. This phrase finds its origin in the usage of the word ecclesia in the Septuagint. In Deuteronomy 4.10, we see a, a, a nominal and a verbal form of the word used to describe Israel gathered at Sinai to hear the word of God and to become and to become and to become the people of God. And that's going to be the key for us. And Vatican II, uh, all the ecclesiology of Vatican II really started with the concept of the people of God. Okay? So, let's go to Deuteronomy 4.10. Now, this is uh, the Septuagint. I'm translating the Septuagint into English. All right? So, about the day when you stood before the Lord, your God, at Horeb, on the day of the church. Okay? Tehimera Teclesias. On the day of the church. When the Lord said to me, and now this is a a very literal and weird, funny translation, but it gets the point across. Church the people to me. So I'm using the word church in a verbal way. Okay, Church the people to me and let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days as long as they live on the earth and may teach their sons, so forth and so on. Church the people to me. Gather them together. Assemble them together. Okay? Oh, and by the way, you can even look at the Greek word itself. It's composed of two words. You've got ak and kaleo. Ak is out. It's a preposition. It means out, and kaleo is to call. And so, ekklesia is to call out. It's an assembly that was called out and gathered in uh, and assembled and put together. Now, this event is referred to there in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as the day of the church. So this event that we're studying today when God comes down on Mount Sinai and all the people of Israel come out to meet Him and the covenant is effective and God speaks the word, that's called the day of the church or the day of the assembly. But I'm using the word day of the church because it's a bridge. It's how we... It comes into Christianity. Okay. So in Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 through 9, I'm not going to read that. It's too many verses. But if you go there on your own, the word ecclesia shows up five times in the phrase... Uh, as the phrase ecclesia curiu, which is the the church of the Lord, the church of the Lord. Okay, uh, this is Israel's special self designation as the holy people of God, set apart from the nations. So this event makes them distinct. It makes them uh, a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Deuteronomy's use of the word ecclesia becomes paradigmatic for the rest of the Septuagint. So, there's, a, there's another word that's used in the Septuagint. It's synagogue. Where do we hear What does that sound like? Synagogue. synagogue. Okay, it comes into English as synagogue, all right? So, you've got these two words, ecclesia and synagogue. 
Alright? While the word synagogue tends to have a mundane and empirical sense, and sometimes even a pejorative sense, ecclesia consistently remains the word that's chosen to designate Israel in its ideal sense as a people called by the Lord to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Okay? So that's how it's used in the Old Testament. Now the early Jewish Christians read it like that, and that's why they refer to themselves, we are the ecclesia to Thau. We are the church of God. So that's where the word church comes from. Okay. So in the Hebrew Bible, the Exodus and Israel's years in the desert have already become an ideal golden age, and yet at the same time an image of the eschatological era. The post-exilic community was already participating in this era as they marched across the desert back to the promised land of the Holy City. So let me parse that for you guys here. Uh, so the Exodus and then the years in the desert. Remember after they... Um, the 40 years of wandering in the deserts. Uh, it's presented in negative terms sometimes, uh, especially in the text themselves in Numbers. But, but actually in the prophets, when the prophets look back to that event, they, they really they look upon it as an ideal era. And so, for example, we've got Hosea chapter 2. All right? This is what Hosea says about the future and how God is going to relate to Israel in the future. Therefore, behold, I will... It's a very kind of romantic passage, actually. It's, it's about God's romantic love between himself and Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And it's actually more beautiful. It goes on and talks about kind of these spousal terms that God will call Israel and Israel will call God, so forth and so on. Um, but what's going on is Hosea is portraying the whole event of the exodus in the years of the wilderness as God's marriage okay, to the people of God. Um, Isaiah, now here's another thing. Isaiah chapter 40, I think we got to call it a night here. Um, it's kind of not a good place to stop, but just to be true to our time, hour and a half went by. So I apologize for the craziness. Um, it was a mistake on our part in terms of scheduling and uh, you know, next week it will there'll be no craziness. So come, everything will be set up. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, make sure, definitely encourage you to, to check. I know there's some people that don't use the internet, and I'll I'll watch after the people that don't use the internet. I'll give phone calls. But for everybody else, really, I encourage you look at the internet, the website. Got a lot of work into it. I got the calendar on it. Just everything's there. Okay. So there's no need to call the office or anything like that. You know about what, whether we're going to do it. So if, if it doesn't happen, I'll put it on the website, but it will be. You know, it'll be next week, the week after that. So we'll start doing Wednesdays now consistently. So th- and thank you for your. For I'm gra- glad that we had a good, good showing. Came back. It's great. You know. So. Okay. Thanks, guys. I look forward to this a lot. It's really the highlight of my my week.